Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son and your son's son as well, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Yet Gideon said to them, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from his plunder. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they said, We will certainly give them to you. So they spread out a garment, and every one of them tossed an earring there from his plunder. The weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, apart from the crescent amulets, the ear pendants, and the purple robes which were on the kings of the Midian, and apart from the neck chains that were on the cam- their camel's necks. Gideon made it into an ephod and placed it in his city, Oprah. But all Israel committed infidelity with it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his household. So Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel, and they did not lift up their heads anymore, and the land was undisturbed for forty years in the days of Gideon. Then Jerobael, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house, Now Gideon had 70 sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father, Joash, in Oprah of the Abiezrites. Then it came about, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the sons of Israel again committed infidelity with the Baals and made Baal Barit their God. So the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had saved them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the household of Jeroboam, that is, Gideon, in accordance with all the good that he had done for Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures on and on. Thank you, Father, for your wonderful truth. Thank you for giving us this so that we might know you, the one true God, that we might see ourselves in the need of a, of a great God like you, and we might turn from our sins and follow the Lord. We ask that you would give us all in this place tonight, give us all hearts to follow Christ. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, I've said this a few times, I'll say it again tonight. We, of course, live in a nation that's not holy. We live in a nation that doesn't pursue righteousness. We live in a city that's that flaunts, actually, God's righteous standards. I mean, think about it. The sanctity of life. Little to no regard in our nation for life. I mean, we don't, we, we, folks, you know, we not only see this in the ongoing opposition to the recent decision of the Supreme Court of Roe v. Wade, but we see it in so many ways, don't we? 
the wholesale slaughter of people. I mean, it's become almost commonplace, is it not? Uh, another shooting. And of course, who gets the bad rap? The handgun. I, I, I'll just, I'm on record, I have handguns. I have shotguns and rifles. I've, I've sat and watched them. I've never seen one jump up and shoot at anything. Wicked hearts can misuse them. And, but it's just become commonplace, hasn't it? We hear it. We, do, you, do you even flinch anymore? Or do you just kind of, oh, another one. Shucks. Back to the laptop. The slaughter of, of humanity. We don't honor life at any level. God has been replaced by something molded in man's own image. And so the God that people think of is not God at all. You and I both have neighbors and friends and loved ones who, while they may not go to church, they may not have any love for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, they believe in Jesus. You don't have to raise your hand. I know you do. You have friends and neighbors like that. They, they believe in Jesus. Do they read their Bibles? No. Do they love Christ's church? No. You say, well, they could still be a Christian. No, they can't, folks. I'm sorry if I'm bursting your bubbles. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And one of the commandments is not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together with Christ's people. You don't love the church, then you don't love Christ. You don't love his word, you don't love Christ. You don't love people who are in need of Christ, then you don't love Christ. Oh, we live in that kind of world. But I've just backed us into the church, haven't I? Is any wonder the world doesn't have any sense of the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the true teachings of God, when the church has become desensitized to all those things as well? And that's what we've seen over the last few weeks. We've seen the church betray the fact that there is no fear no regard for his transcendent holiness, no cognitive response to his righteous perfection, no compliance to the essentials of who he is. M many of you in this room travel. Someone was telling me just recently they, they worshiped out of town and had to get up and leave because the service was such a, such a travesty. The so-called worship service was just, just one big joke after other. That's the way we cover up these days with levity, right? 
and we find churches covering up the fact that they don't worship the true God with levity. Now, anybody who knows me well knows that I don't, I'm not a sullen sort of person, but there's a place for everything. And so we have to be careful when we, when we look out and we, we, we start talking about our nation being as pathetic as it is because who's the leaven of our nation? Well, we are. And then what does that say about the leaven, the, the church? That's very convicting, isn't it? That we're not as bright a light as we should be and we're not as salty a salt as we should be. And by the way, I'll remind you, we are salt and light. You know, what Jesus does not say in the Sermon on the Mount is you need, to, you need to become salt and light. No, he says you are the salt and light. Present tense. There's no future tense there. There's no, no becoming. It's, it's, it's present we are. That's who we are. Well, this passage in Judges chapter 8, we see here the root problem of all that I'm going to point out to you in this brief passage, and that is just what it says in verse 34, so the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God. I just couldn't help noticing this morning as Pastor Morris was reading the text from Exodus and again in the, in the exposition of the text, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Why did God say remember? Well, there's a, a, a few reasons why he says remember the Sabbath day. One is it already existed. That's one of the evidences that it was a creation ordinance, as he pointed out. We already saw it back in Exodus chapter 16. It's part of the problem of, of, of Israel. They had forsaken the Sabbath. So the Lord is in codifying, inscripturating the moral law, which had been written on the heart of man in the garden. He's now inscripturating it, codifying it, because they'd forgotten. And when you forget something for so long, it's as though it ceases to exist. So God put it in in print and he said remember but right there is the is the real heart of remember the sabbath day is that they had forgotten the sabbath day that falls under the point he made this morning of the the consequences of the fall on the sabbath they'd forgotten it well and that goes hand in hand with the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God. They'd forgotten God. Now, if you'd ask the average Hebrew, you know, you've forgotten God? No, by no means. But the God they were remembering was a God after their own image. And it was, and it was namely Gabriel, Jerubbaal. That's who they were remembering, but not the real God. So, easy for us to do. 
can happen subtly. So it's a call for all of us to, to check our hearts tonight and be sure that we're not forgetting and that we're not letting some of these other things creep in. And so we can identify some of those other things that creep in and, and, and don't let them. Or if they have, excise them. So here we go. First point, greed. The greed in this passage suggests that we've forgotten God. Verse 22, the men of Israel said to Gideon. Now let me set the context, the immediate context. Gideon, the 300 men, have, have, have routed the Midianites. You remember, parents, if you haven't read this to your kids for a while, you ought to go back and read the early a couple of chapters back and read about how the Lord uh, decided to whittle down the number of men from thousands to thousands to 300. And what was that final way that God did it? Well, you remember, it was the water. So you go read it. Your children need to think about it and then get them to try lapping water like a dog. I remember trying to do that as a child. It's not easy. I admire dogs on that part. Now, it makes me thankful for hands, right? And, and cups and glasses, of course, but hands particularly. But uh, that's the context. So they have won the battle, and Gideon has cleaned up, cleaned up the last of them, Ziba and Zalmunna. Then the men of Israel said, rule over us, both you and your son, your son's son as well, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Okay, that sounded good. Right? I mean, Gideon? Thank you. Rule over us. No, the Lord, let the Lord rule over you. But what we read when we go on is to realize that with his mouth, he confessed a good game. But with his heart, he was far away from God. And what happens next? But Gideon said to them, I won't rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Yet, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from his plunder. See, that was very typical. Uh, kings would plunder a land and they would take the plunder. It was theirs because they're now the king. They have the rule over. So even though Gideon is saying, nope, I'm not going to rule over you. He was really saying, I don't want to be the king, but I want the benefits of being your king. Now, the benefits were the money. So they chunk the earrings on there, pile them up, and it's a whole bunch. The weight of the gold earrings he requested was 1,700 shekels. And that doesn't even count the crescent amulets, the ear pendants, the purple robes which were on the king's Midian, apart from the neck chains that were on their camel's necks. They had well-dressed camels, kids. So greed. And by the way, did you notice what we read back in 1 Timothy? The love of money is the root of all evil. 
And by the way, it's not money that's the root of all evil. It's the love. It's the desire for it. And by the way, I know more poor people that lust after money than rich people. You know, we usually think, we usually, we usually point the finger when we read that passage at people with wealth, don't we? Oh, yeah. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And we tie that passage of the Lord's into that passage in 1 Timothy. But you can be destitute and sit around and think about money all the time. In fact, it's probably easier because you don't have it. You can end up in the same place that Timothy's talking. The same people he's addressing. Now, greed. That's evident in Gilead. Or in Gideon, rather. And so... He says, I'm not going to rule over you. So he says the right thing, but his heart's not in the right place. And it's evidenced by the greed, the desire for this, this wealth. Then there's a disregard for the, God's ways. That suggests that, that they have forgotten God. The next thing we read is that he, he took that and he made it, that gold, and he made it into an ephod and placed it in his city, Oprah. So Gideon wanted not only what the king should have, the money, but he also wanted what the high priest alone should have. God had said, only the priest. I'll let you go back to Leviticus and read about this. We don't have time to do that now. Ephod didn't belong to, to Gideon. It was not his to have because what the ephod represented was a means of communicating with deity, with, with God in the case of the Hebrews. This is what one fine commentator says. Gideon must have thought that he could separate the ephod from its legitimate high priestly function in the tabernacle at Shiloh and to use it to receive divine oracles independently. He wanted what the high priest alone we're supposed to have. He wanted to, to receive what the high priest alone were supposed to receive. But he wanted it in a way that God had not approved. That's another good evidence of the church straying. It's when the church is doing things without regard for the way God said to do it. God said it. Let's just do it that way. Oh, yes, but. And we get into all of our personal preferences at that point. And we're going to see in a moment where that lands these people. So the greed suggests they've forgotten the Lord. The disregard for God's ways suggests that, that they have forgotten the Lord. And then compromise suggests that we've forgotten God. Verse 27 Gideon made it into an ephod, placed it in his city, Oprah, remember, not Shiloh, where the priests were. 
But all Israel committed infidelity with it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his household. So Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel. They did not lift up their heads anymore, and the land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon. I went ahead and read 28 because there's something really interesting there, don't you think? They're doing everything wrong. And they must have thought everything was all right because they were living at peace. The enemies had been conquered. Midian was at bay. Let me ask you a question. Usually when everything's going all right, don't you think, well, I, I, must, be, I must be doing all right. Everything's good. No bills that I can't pay. Good job. Children are well. I must, be, I must be pleasing the Lord. I must be obeying the Lord. They weren't. And everything was hunky-dory. You have to be careful about reading providence. Everything around them suggested that they were good and godly folks. But that was just God keeping his, his, his word to Gideon earlier. That had nothing to do with them being obedient. Verse 28 speaks singularly to God being faithful, not to them being faithful. Verse 27b tells us they were unfaithful. They played the whore. They committed infidelity with the ephod. With something holy, they misused it. Now, I don't know how that was. Commentators are here and there on, well, what, what did they do? What kind of infidelity? But we know when we get into the New Testament particularly, and we study about the cities of Ephesus and other cities, they all had their cult prostitutes. So they'd go to their, their holy temples in these cities, and there would be prostitutes there. You're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Temples? Religion? Prostitutes? Yeah. Now, I don't know if that's what's going on here or not. We're not told specifically. But we are told they committed infidelity with the ephod in Gideon's city. And this became a snare to Gideon and his family. When you step outside of God's way of doing things, you can bet trouble's coming. And so while Gideon suffered, the people lived at peace. That's remarkable, isn't it, to think about? Why did Gideon suffer? Because he's responsible. He's the one that compromised. And God is dealing with him. Even though he's keeping his word to the people in general and giving them peace for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Compromise. By the way, part of the compromise was not just the ephod and then we see the infidelity, but 
Did you notice where he put the ephod? I alluded to it a moment ago. He placed it, and the writer is very clear, isn't he? In his city. He didn't place it where it was a, where an ephod would be expected to be. He put it in his city. Compromise. Oprah was the city of David. And now he's inquiring of God in the, whole, in the place of the high priest. And everything is gone sideways, as we say. And God is nowhere in their minds. And then finally, verses 29 through 32, we read this. Then Jerubiel... And we, we, we already know that that's the other name for Gideon. We saw that clear, uh, clarified down in verse 35 here. Then Jerubiel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. Another compromise. And his concubine, who was at Shechem, also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. Words in this passage suggest that we've forgotten God, and our words can suggest the same thing. So he starts off saying, no, I don't want to be your king. There should only be God as your king. The Lord is your king. But everything we read in between that and this suggests his heart was otherwise. He loved the attention, and it brought him all sorts of grief. One of the things we read here is that he bore a son out of wedlock, a concubine. We don't even have to get into the many wives. We know that's a violation of God's word. You say, but so many of the people, including the man after God's own heart, David, that doesn't make it right, folks. And by the way, have you read the Old Testament lately? Do you keep up with all the heartache, all the travesty, all the worldwide strife that was caused by men having more than one wife? Nothing good ever came out of it, then or now. For men to violate God's, the two shall become one. Now, he names his son out of wedlock son, which, and I want to say this with all clarity, is there's a three-letter word that, that set, speaks to this. What's it called? Sin. I know we live in a promiscuous culture. A lot of people have children out of wedlock, and that does not legitimize it. That does not take the stain off of it. In God's eyes, that is sin. And it should not be celebrated in any shape, form, or fashion. It should be called to repentance. Now, with that said, he names his son, his out-of-wedlock son, Abimelech. Now, for a long time, Abimelech was sort of a, sort of a 
a foggy word. We weren't sure what, but most scholarship is agreed now that what it means is my father is king. So you've been thinking, well, maybe you're reading into Gideon a little too much, you know, his, his heart being far from the Lord. No, I don't want to be king. Let the Lord be your king. And then he names his son, my father is king. His heart was far from the Lord. Now, question for you. Did Gideon know that his heart had drifted that far away? Now, I don't do a lot of speculating in the pulpit. I hope you've recognized that over the years. And I realize this could be in the speculative vein. But I don't see anything in this text, folks, and this is the frightening part for each of us. I don't see anything in this text that suggests that Gideon was altogether conscious that he had drifted. And so easy for us to drift. Oh, if I have more money, if I have more wealth, if I have more things, that'll be a greater means for me doing more for God. Well, that's true. I mean, John Wesley said, you know, you should make more so you can save more so you can give more. There's nothing wrong with that, but... Somewhere in there, it's easy sometimes for good motives to get skewed. And all of a sudden, it becomes about the getting instead of the giving. The making of the ephod. Now, that's, that's a little harder. I, I don't know that you can do that one subtly. But perhaps... People do all sorts of things. I want to do this for the church. And all of a sudden they've done something for the church which is a terrible distraction to the church. And becomes something that the church can't, can't undo. If you want to know some examples of that, you can ask me afterwards. I'm not going to sully your, your, your nice little precious unadulterated ears with some of the stories I could tell you about good things people have done for churches and all of a sudden it became a problem for the church. But most of them end up having somebody's name attached to them. And they're usually big and colorful. But when you get to this point, and you name your son, my king, my, fa my father is king. When there is no one but God who is king. Then you have to realize that you have forgotten God. So, that's what happens to God. And that's what happens to the church when... She forgets her God. She ends up compromising. And she ends up really 
worshiping a God that's not a God at all. And God has promised that he, he will not let that go on. So it's better for us to check our hearts regularly, daily, weekly, and repent when we find ourselves drifting as an individual Christian, as the people of God, the church, so that we might not forget God. And then we, the church, will be a greater good in this world as we go out into this beautiful world that the Lord has given us to enjoy. Lord, we thank you for reminding us, for giving us these kinds of, of historical stories in your word to call us back away from our drift, which is so easy. We ask that you might grant us repentance tonight and faith to live better because whatever is not a faith is sin. Let me pray this in Christ's name. Amen.